You're listening to Autumn on the Air, the weekly podcast that brings you conversations about the impact of research commercialization and the people who make it happen. Join us for interviews with patent and licensing professionals, innovators, entrepreneurs, and tech transfer leaders on the issues and trends that matter most. Keep listening for an inside track on the people, IP policies, and politics changing our world. Welcome to Autumn on the Air. I'm your host, Lisa Mueller. Women account for just 28% of the workforce in science, technology, engineering, and math, also known as STEM, while men outnumber women in most STEM subjects in college. Gender disparities are especially pronounced in some of the future's fastest growing and highest paying occupations, such as computer science and engineering. Today, to talk about her own journey in STEM, tech transfer, and bridging the gender gap in STEM fields, I'm joined by Terriana Stewart. Terriana Stewart works at IBM's Research Intellectual Property Group as a core AI licensing executive, where her current efforts are focused on marketing and licensing existing intellectual property to establish businesses and investors. Terriana previously worked at Georgia Institute of Technology as a technology licensing associate, evaluating and analyzing invention disclosures, developing licensing strategies, directing patent counsel in the preparation, filing, and prosecution of U.S. and international patent applications, and developing market opportunities to commercialize early-stage technology. Thanks for joining us on the air, Terriana. I'm very happy to be here, Lisa. Well, I'm super excited to have you on the podcast today because we're going to spend a lot of time talking about one of my favorite subjects, which is STEM. And in fact, you have a bachelor's degree in psychology, a master's degree in biology, and a PhD in biological and biomedical sciences. So you have a really interesting route to STEM. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. uh, When I was a freshman in college, I thought I wanted to be a psychiatrist. So I was psychology pre-med. And then I did actually some schizophrenia research while I was an undergrad and quickly realized that this is not the profession I want to be in. Um, But around that time, it was around 07, 08. And so we know uh, we were in a horrible recession. So I was like, I was get a master's degree in biology and hopefully buy out my time. Uh, still doing clinical research. Um, but then I finished my master's in 08, which was not ideal. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to apply. I applied to medical school, law school, and a PhD program. I got waitlisted for law school, medical school, and then I got into the PhD program. So I was like, I will just do that and buy out my time. So that's literally my track and how I ended up with a PhD in biomedical sciences. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. It would have been interesting to see if you had gotten into all three at the same time. Oh, I know, right? Yeah, it would have been interesting. So is science something you've always been interested in, even from an early age? Yeah. So I had a good fortune of coming from a, a household with like highly educated parents. So my dad is a criminal defense attorney. My mom is an RN. She got her master's degree from a school here in Atlanta called Emory University. So I've just been around science my entire life. And then, you know, eventually following the IP, which was like merging science and law, which, you know, from my father being an attorney, um, I guess that was foreshadowing a little bit. But it's just always been a part of my life. It's it's just what I've always known about. 
Yeah, it would have been interesting. I mean, it sounds like your dad was probably rooting for the law school. Your mom was probably rooting for the med school and then you had right. the PhD. So it's really interesting. So would you say were they, um, did they help you, you know, push you towards realizing your potential in science or, or was there someone else like a teacher? No, it was really, um, again, my mom let me know, like, you have to have a profession in life, right? So you go to college for a profession. It's either you want to be a doctor, you want to be a lawyer or a CPA or a scientist or an engineer. So she had me thinking from a very early age about, uh, A, what profession is recession-proof? Because, you know, at the time, my parents had both lived the recession, you know, so they realized it's great to have a profession. Um, and also, like, what you can do to actually make an impact and, um, and science seemed like a reasonable route. So then you graduated with a PhD, uh, in science, and then you ended up in a law firm and drafting applications. How did you first learn about intellectual property? Right. So, um, there is a wonderful black patent attorney in Atlanta and he quickly realized that there was not enough women and minorities in the IP field. And he actually came to Morehouse School of Medicine, which is where I got my PhD from. And he just did a a short course. It was a free lunch. So, you know, when you're in college, anything with a free lunch, you're going to show up. Um, And he talked about intellectual property. And I have never heard about this. And I was like, I think this sounds better than being stuck in a lab once you graduate. Um, and then I looked at how much like patent attorneys make and I was like, oh, okay, well, maybe this is something that I can do. And I was and again, like from my father, I was already used to law life. Right. And so I was like, okay, I think I could do this. Um, and so from there, he actually had this training program that actually is still going on to this day for, uh, I'm going to give a shout out to the patent pipeline program, which basically, uh, teaches you how to draft patent applications um, so that way you can actually be more marketable to get jobs. And so that program has actually evolved now, which I'm still part of. And, and I feel like I, I have to bring this up. Um, that uh, allows students to get training first and then they're allowed to go in-house. So Facebook is a sponsor. IBM Research I work for is a sponsor. You go in-house and you learn how to draft patent applications from in-house attorneys. And then you go work for a law firm, right, that wants to get the work from these companies. And then you go and you work for these law firms and you get trained and you get hired. And the reason why we're doing this is because, Lisa, you you worked in a law firm. Law firms aren't um, exactly conducive for uh, women no. and people of color. Absolutely. And not. I quickly got out of working for a law firm because I realized uh, this the system was not designed for someone like me to succeed. And I was having a very difficult time. And I was like, you know what? I don't really think I want to do this. Um, And my story is not unique at all. I'm sure if you talk to many women, regardless of color, many women have a very hard time having careers in law firms. Yeah, myself included. I mean, when right. when I entered uh, law practice in the mid 90s, I was one of the few women at the time and it was extremely challenging. And that's why a lot of women get out of the legal field in general and patent law in particular. It's very, very challenging when you're first starting out. It's even small things like um, I remember they would have meetings <laughs> between 730 and 830 in the morning. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know what? Clearly, you've never taken your child to school before. Because if you have, then you would know not to have meetings at 8 a.m. 
And so then after a while, as a woman, you either have to make up excuses on why you can't make it, or you just decide I can't do this because people are now looking at you like, why are you constantly late? How come you can't make these meetings? So it's little things like that. And that's why I, I say is like the system as a whole is not designed for, uh, you know, minorities to achieve success. Yeah. And I just want to go back to that patent pipeline program. It is an excellent program. Um, I'm well aware of that program and it's an, an excellent, excellent program. So it's great that, that you're involved with it. So you found out that law firm life wasn't for you. How did you end up in tech transfer and at Georgia Tech? Uh, the power of networking. Uh, a good friend of mine from my PhD program, she was working at Georgia Tech. I called her and I was like, you got to save me. <laughs> I got to get out of here. <laughs> she was uh, she was actually leaving Georgia Tech to go work at Emory. And so she literally said, I'm leaving, but here's my replacement. Um, and so that's how I ended up at Georgia Tech as a licensing associate. And I loved it. I loved being back on the campus. Uh, I felt like my PhD was finally respected and uh, it was just fun because I was able to really get my hands on early stage technology and, and figure out, okay, is it patentable? Which, you know, working on a law firm helped me with that. But then there's like another component of, okay, like, is this marketable and can we commercialize and get a license for it? Yeah. And just a disclaimer, um, I think I was the first female uh, black licensing associate hired. So it sounds like it was a very easy transition for you going from law firm life to uh, Georgia Tech. Was there anything that surprised you um, when you got into tech transfer, something that you hadn't realized before or, you know, something unique that um, you appreciated? Yeah. The, the biggest surprise for me, so A, universities like as an undergrad and in graduate school, a lot of universities don't really promote the tech transfer office. Um, once I got into it, I was like, oh, wow, like maybe during my PhD program, maybe I could have been slightly more inventive and gotten a patent application and, and see where that could lead. Um, I just didn't even know that that even existed on a campus. And a lot of students don't realize that that exists. Um, and just all the resources that your tech transfer office can have as a student. Now, it sounds like you really enjoyed your time at Georgia Tech and you were there. And then um, how did you go from Georgia Tech and tech transfer to IBM? Um, it, to be honest, uh, and this has happened a lot in industries across the board, um, after George Floyd happened, um, a lot of companies were taking a look internally and realizing that there is a lack of diversity. And again, Lisa, as you know, just it's very difficult to find a black woman with a PhD in STEM, uh, patent prosecution experience, and then technology licensing experience. So I'm essentially a unicorn. <laughs> you you are, yes, because right. all firms, all law firms, I can tell you are trying to hire that right now. And, and they are just not there. Our clients are telling us we have to hire them and, and they're very few and far between. Yep. Patent Pipeline Program, we have a pool of students. We have over 500 students in our database that law firms can partner up with us. So I'm going to give that plug again for any law firms listening out there, Patent Pipeline Program. Braxton Davis, that's who you need to Google. So, so going back to IBM Research, uh, I will give credit to the GM of the IP group. He was looking around and he was like, you know, we don't have a lot of diversity. 
Um, and again, through the power of networking, he reached out and someone was like, oh, I, I, I Tariana, you know, I can recommend her. And so uh, that's how I, I got the job with IBM Research. And it's been a great experience. And um, again, you know, like they quickly recognized that we need to do slightly better and that our employees need to be representative of the clients that we have. And so what kind of things do you work on at IBM and how is that different than when you were at Georgia Tech? You know, obviously you are licensing associate at, at Georgia Tech. I'm assuming you do licensing now, but it sounds like you also have an expanded role as well. So um, so with IBM Research, not IBM Proper, I always like to make that distinction. I didn't realize it even before I got hired. Um, so IBM Research is broken up into like three pillars. There's like quantum computing, AI, and um, what we call like accelerated discovery. Um, I'm in the AI pillar. And so my job is to license, just like a university, pre-product technology within our AI research pillar. Oh, that's fascinating. It must be really interesting to see the things that are coming out of uh, research there in that particular area in AI. And so you went from law firm to tech transfer now to industry. So as I asked, when you went from law firm to uh, tech transfer about anything that surprised you. How about going from tech transfer to industry? Oh, the biggest thing is that, oh, IBM wants to make money. <laughs> like that's a priority. And there's things called quarters that in each quarter you have to make a, a quota, right? And so, uh, you know, universities, they don't get a lot of revenue from royalties. Why? Because they have student tuition and all those fees and grant money. So it's very important to have a productive tech transfer office. They're not purely reliant on it. Um, and there's no like, quote unquote, like CEO either putting pressure on the director of the tech transfer office to make money um, compared to a, a company to where it's a priority. So uh, and things move very quickly within a company. And, and I always make the joke when you're working at a university, they tend to move at glacier speed. <laughs> um, so like, those were like the two things that were the biggest surprise. Like, Oh, like I got any, I need to be fast. And you guys want to make money. So now that you're in industry on the other side from tech transfer, do you have any advice for some of your tech transfer licensing colleagues on some best practices or tips when they're negotiating with industry? I'm going to go back to business cycles, you know, they move very quickly. And so, and this really, this isn't unique to researchers at universities. It's, it's unique to researchers in general is that um, whatever theory you might have going on in your mind about like new innovation, the theories are really going to outlast the, 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 the business cycle. And I think the a book, The Economist, I think a quote that he read was like a like theories and innovation live and die like fruit flies, right? So like very quickly. And so you might have a researcher at a university and, you know, like actually let's give an example. So I get an invention disclosure. I'm at Georgia Tech. I get an invention disclosure on my desk today and I'm reviewing it. And I see this researcher has been working on something for five plus years and they're just now ready to submit the invention disclosure. And they're giving a list of companies like, oh, I think this company might be interested. This company might be interested. And, and I'm like, and I would ask like, well, how do you know? Well, you know, I did my research and, and I remember that they were going in this direction. Well, from the business side, you might have did that research two years ago, right? But that doesn't mean in Q4 of 2022, that's going to be applicable to our needs. 
Um, and so I would always recommend, and even IBM has this model of uh, joint development agreements, right? That's what we look for when we're trying to partner, like out licensing to other companies. And that's what universities should be looking for because you as a research aren't going to know the bigger picture of the direction the company wants to go in. And so it's better to come in early on with a joint development agreement, do the foundational work that that company might need so that way they can go on and productize it and commercialize it. Uh, the university is still getting money. You as your lab are still getting money. You know, your students might be able to get an internship with this company as well. So it's a win-win. And I think that's a better model than trying to predict where the company is going to go. And then you go after like a software license or technology license. Um, it's just not the best way of doing it. If I, that's, that's the advice that I would give to, uh, to my tech transfer offices promote JDAs. Yeah, I think that's really helpful advice. So thank you for that. Um, I wanted to switch back to talking about STEM. And, you know, as we were talking earlier, women are heavily underrepresented in the STEM fields. And this is something I know you're also very passionate about bridging the gender gap in STEM. In your experience, how can we bring more girls and women to STEM? I'm going to be honest with you, Lisa, it starts at home. Right. It's a matter like what my parents did for me. And I'm doing the same thing for my daughter. It's promoting it's promoting a different career track. Right. And getting your child not necessarily excited about STEM, but like this is just what you do because it's a part of your everyday life. Um and even now with my daughter, I'm real, and the technology that I'm seeing now with um, the quantum computing, because I am slightly involved in the quantum computing group at IBM Research, and I'm actually working with other universities. We're trying to engage more universities uh, to gain access to our quantum hard drive. I'm sitting here thinking, wow, I don't even know what my daughter's career is going to be when she turns 18. I'm not even going to fathom it. But I do know that coding probably quantum computing is going to be, or some type of like AI, like she's going to have like a, a foundational knowledge on what this is for the next job, for her job, because I can't even help her right now to even, I'm thinking when she goes to college, I don't even know what degree she might be able to get. I can't even predict it now. Right. And so I, I think it's just a matter of starting incredibly young with our girls and just like, you know, like this has to be part of your everyday life, particularly the girls now, because by the time they're 18, there's not going to be the same jobs that we see now when they get older. Yeah, absolutely. The The types of jobs are really, really changing quickly. And things that we've traditionally thought of being kind of typical jobs are not going to be there anymore. So they're they're constantly evolving. So while there's a huge gap between women and men in these industries, this also holds true for minorities. And it's reported that 69% of the STEM population is white, leaving people of color severely underrepresented as well. During your educational and professional journey, did you face obstacles or bias as a woman of color? I, I had the good fortune of getting my PhD at Morehouse School of Medicine. So it's predominantly African-American. Um, and so this is a really great move for me because I was getting feedback and I, and I had the safety of knowing it was true feedback and there was no subconscious biasness behind it. Um, so it gave me a, like a wonderful confidence that I can do this. And, and I even did some work over at, uh, Emory school of medicine as well. 
And I had the good fortune of having a, a diverse committee. And so I was able to trust their feedback um, when helping me. So I didn't feel any biasness during my PhD program. The first time where I felt different was working at a law firm. And again, my story is very common. Yeah. At least yeah. you're nodding your head. So you know that. Yeah. I, I experienced it as a woman in the early nineties and, and, um, I can't even imagine what you went through in the nineties. My God. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, yeah, I, I do have a lot of stories, but, uh, that's for another I'm time. I'm sure you do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so do you think as a society, we're starting to make some progress on expanding opportunities for underrepresented groups? I do. It's interesting. So some, I go back and, and speak to undergrads and I tell people all the time, it's a great time right now to be a woman or a person of color. Um, I've had probably more opportunities now purely because of, again, what happened with George Floyd and people's eyes being opened and realizing that the way things have traditionally been done is not, uh, it's not acceptable anymore. Um, so I am encouraging women and minorities to take advantage of these opportunities and grow within their careers. So that way, when my daughter is 20 years old and she wants to be an IP attorney, she has plenty of women, black men, black men or black women, Asian, LGBT community that are partners at a law firm. So I am like charging people now to step up take advantage. So that way the next generation is not really dealing with the same things that we're dealing with now. So what do you think STEM and tech transfer leaders can do to help create more inclusive environments as well as foster opportunities for underrepresented groups? It's so interesting. Tech transfer and just like with IP, I I recognize, again, it's a very niche group, right? So most people don't even hear about a licensing associate position or even being a patent attorney to begin with. And then the qualifications is you have to have a STEM degree. Yes. So you're picking from a very small group of people to begin with. Um, but it's a matter of outrage. So honestly, at least at Georgia Tech, I was the first black female licensing associate that was hired. Wow. If I'm correct with my, my research on it. And I live in Atlanta. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You would think there would be more individuals, uh, black individuals in tech transfer and right. coming from Atlanta. Yeah. Right. And so I think it's a matter of a like universities internally taking a look and say, how many black licensing associates have we've had? How many female associates do we have? Like how many truly like diverse groups of licensing associates have we had? And you got to recruit. I think a lot of research, I think a lot of universities in general don't feel like they have to recruit, but if DNI is important to you, you have to do some outreach. You have to. I think that's really important because I teach along with another law firm, a patent academy. It's along the same lines as the patent pipeline program that you're involved with, but um, it doesn't have kind of the internship work within, you know, an in-house department or law firm type of thing, but we're training individuals to draft patent applications and respond to office actions to give them the skills to take the patent bar and get hired by law firms and and um, trying to make a difference there. But what I hear a lot from the PhD students um, who participate in the program is, 
I didn't know about IP as a career. I didn't know about tech transfer because we spend one part, one class in particular talking about things like tech transfer and patent agents and patent lawyers and things like that. And it goes back to something you said a little bit earlier about like when you were going through the PhD program, you didn't even know about IP and and maybe you would have been more inventive. So I think, you know, that is true about, you know, getting the information out that tech transfer, patent law are career opportunities for, you know, college science majors or engineering majors as well as postdocs. Yeah. I mean, if you talk to most people that are in tech transfer office, like, oh, how'd you break in? I guarantee at least a 99% would say, oh, it was by accident. I think, yeah, I've heard that before. I've heard that before through the (laughs) interviews that I've done. It was just, you know, it was by accident. Um, So you're, you're spot on about that. Um, do you think there are things that organizations such as Autumn can do to help remove barriers for underrepresented groups? In terms of breaking into the tech transfer industry? Yeah. Again, it's just, um, it's recruitment. And it's just, it's educating people that this is a career track. Because again, like, I mean, it all goes back to like corporations. Corporations have a responsibility for their employees to look like their uh, clients. And I think when it comes to tech transfer, you have an obligation to have your licensing associates mimic your students and your faculty. And I'll give an example. So again, so this goes hand in hand too. So there's not even enough female faculty members submitting invention disclosures, right? That's a whole nother problem with the low, yes, the low number of female inventors. Yes. Right. Because they might get discouraged because they might constantly are dealing with licensing associates who don't look like them. And so they might not give them the time of day. Exactly. And I think the great example would be uh, Sarah Blakely here in Atlanta that was a founder of Spanx, right? No one knew what it was. Like she couldn't find a patent attorney here in Atlanta to patent Spanx because it was all men and they didn't understand what this was. Now, exactly. any woman, if you go up to them, like, hey, here's an idea. We're going to suck in all your fat and you're not even going to see the panty lines, right? <laughs> <laughs> and you can wear it wherever you want to. Like most women would be like, oh yeah, this is a great idea. Yes, brilliant. Right? Yeah, Please exactly. Sign me up for it. Um, and so she actually went to the Georgia Tech Library and figured out how to write her own patent for Spanx, right? Because she couldn't find someone that looked like her. And so in my mind, I'm like, I wonder how many faculty members at universities are dealing with the same thing of like, okay, there's no one in that office that looks like me. They might not understand what my technology is, or they might even dismiss me because I am a woman, right? So there might be some subconscious bias like that. So it will help the university as a whole to have more licensing associates that are diverse. Yeah, Absolutely. And so as the podcast comes to a close, I wanted to ask you, could you share with us some of your proudest moments as a woman of color in STEM? It's just now hitting me um, because I'm able to do a lot more speaking engagements. And I was at this one conference and I was speaking and a student came up to me and she was like, oh, I've never seen a black woman with a PhD before. And I was like, oh, wow. And so we've just been chatting and she is getting her master's degree. And she was like, I want to get my PhD now. And I'm like, well, go for it. (laughs) Just do it. Um, So that's been, and I've had a few moments like that too. And so those have been my proudest moments. That's fantastic. So Tariana, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today and learning about your journey in tech transfer to academia, to industry at IBM, as well as discussing how we as a community can work to be more inclusive. 
Thanks so much for taking the time to join me on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Autumn on the Air with Lisa Mueller. Get social with us and share your thoughts. You can tweet us at AUTM or visit us online at AUTM.net. We'll be back next week on the air. Be sure to join us. New to tech transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for tech transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and align on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.